No good deed goes unpunished. You've probably heard that. I'm, you, you may hear it better now while you're not hearing the extra. Okay. No good deed goes unpunished. There's just enough truth in that adage that everybody relates to it a little bit. There was a young man by the name of John Leicester who had just moved to Merseyside, England to start a new job. His first day, he was on his way to work. He decided to walk that morning just a couple of kilometers from where he was living. And as he was walking, he saw a cell phone on the ground, picked it up, thought somebody obviously is missing this. And as he walked on a little further, he came to the police station. He thought, this is the obvious place to turn it in. So he went into the police station, told them he found this on the ground. They asked him to wait just a minute as they checked things out. They were able to get enough information on it to discern that this particular cell phone had been stolen from its owner. So they promptly arrested John Leicester for possession of stolen property and put him in jail uh, with a bond that had to be paid. Unfortunately, he had just moved there. His family was from some distance away. He thought about calling his uh, place of employment. They'll surely come and uh, take care of me. But the boss said, well, we actually don't hire people who have a uh, prison record. And so they said, you no longer have a job. It took about four or five hours before finally some good judgment came to play and they decided he did not deserve to be arrested for having tried to turn in somebody's property. But Mr. Leicester said afterwards, Next time I see the opportunity to do something good for someone else, I think I will think very carefully about it before I do that. The text that we have this morning has something of that same kind of flavor for it, except it's Jesus who didn't seem to have the later reticence that John Leicester had. I'd like to read a a somewhat extended portion, uh, several verses out of John 5. Uh, Feel free to follow along in your own scripture, or I'll try to read in a way that will be sufficiently clear that you'll be able to understand it. Starting with the uh, first verse in the fifth chapter of John. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Get this, it's a beautiful setting. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid For 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, 
Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walked. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. That's quite a story. Try to catch what all's gone on there. First of all, let's let's look at what the setting was. The the setting is a pool. It's a beautiful pool that uh, had these colonnades around, provided shade. The pools there in Jerusalem were attached to one another through a conduit. They're, they were reservoirs collected when there is rain and provided a, uh, perhaps some additional spring water so that they were places where people could go to get fresh water. They could go to get the water to bathe. This particular pool uh, had a pattern of occasionally bubbling up from the bottom and uh, this one had drawn special attention because people believed that something was going on. These were healing waters. You've heard of healing spas that people want. These were perceived to be healing waters. Now, what we have here is a tradition that can be well established, but no cures are established. There's no record of any cures from the water. I remember the first time I learned about this. I was probably in Miss Green's Sunday school class uh, around age five or so, and uh, we saw about it through, uh, you know, looking at flannel graph, but she explained to us how the waters would be just very, very still, and then without any apparent reason, all of a sudden, they start bubbling up and just bubble all over. How about that, boys and girls? Can you imagine that? And... Uh, we ask, well, why did they do that? Well, uh, one of the uh, people had an old King James Version, and the King James Version had an extra tradition that had not been included by the Apostle John when he wrote this, but someone probably in the 2nd or 3rd century had written in a, a margin that an angel stirred the waters. But we uh, thought that probably wasn't like what, what it was. You know, we were skeptical five- and six-year-old kids. 
Uh, Bunny Munson, however, she was the oldest person in the class, and she suggested that it was probably some high uh, complex hydraulic phenomena relating to the conduit of waters underneath the city. And so that's what we uh, five- and six-year-old children concluded. Okay, it may not have been exactly like that. But it was a fascinating phenomenon. And there were people who honestly hoped that this will be the thing that will make me well. But the tradition said the first one in the pool after the waters are stirred, that's the one who will receive the healing. Well, let's look at the characters that are played here. The first one is Jesus. You've probably heard about him. The people in Jerusalem had heard about him, but at this point they were not well acquainted with him because he had pretty well invested his his ministry elsewhere, up in Samaria and Galilee. Remember the story of the woman at the well? That had taken place. Uh, He had uh, begun to uh, do some healings, and the word of that was spreading, but they weren't really ready for him, and this was not going to be his major entry. But he came in to, uh, to Jerusalem. And it's interesting that in coming into Jerusalem, he came for one of the religious celebrations, one of the feasts that it's appropriate to go for. It's like getting together for a major worship occasion. Uh, He did not go present himself to the king. He did not seek out the leaders. First place he went was a place where needy people, the neediest of the needy people were gathered. That's what Jesus did. Now there's also this lame man. We never get his name. Somewhat interesting character. Jesus approached this man. He had heard that he had been paralyzed for 38 years. I don't know if you know anyone who has been enormously paralyzed for a time like that. Life is really challenging when the body is not working well. Jesus said to him, Do you want to be well? That might seem like an obvious question. I've spent some time this week uh, traveling with my uh, my friend Steve Cottom. And Steve uh, was our family doctor for a number of years. And he is just now retiring from his medical uh, practice and is trying to reorient himself to do medical mission work. And so I took him over to Indiana to get acquainted with some people who can help to foster his in, uh, involvement in that medical work. But we were talking, and uh, he said, you know, when I went into the practice of medicine, I saw as my major calling to help people fight the diseases that come and ravish the body. He said, more and more it seems like my calling is to help people to deal with a lifetime of inactivity, physical inactivity, a diet that is uh, low in nutrients and rich in calories, 
and also to help them deal with the effects of habits they've developed that have been destructive to the body. Smoking tobacco, drinking alcohol, and consumption of other various drug uh, substances that really prove negative to the body over the long run. And he says, people will come to me now and say, Doc, make me well. And I have to say, I really need a lot more cooperation from you if you're ever going to get well. Well, the question for this man, that would have seemed like an obvious question. Do you want to be well? Why, of course, except his answer was really a non-answer. How can I be well? I don't have anyone who can help me into the pool. Oh, that's a challenge. Now, if indeed the uh, tradition were true that the first person in the pool is the one who's going to get well, in any race among crippled people, the ones who are less crippled are likely to win the race. This man was really crippled. He really didn't have a chance on his own of being the first one into the pool. Does not seem to be a very sophisticated person. Um, kind of interesting that when uh, he was asked, he asked, who did this? Who told you you could carry your uh, mat, walk about? You know, first time I've walked for 38 years, and now he's uh, carrying his, it's just a little rolled up straw mat probably. Uh, so he's carrying it about. And um, who was this? Don't you think you'd be a little curious about who it is that has just produced this tremendous miracle for you? And a little later, Jesus did meet him in the temple, and uh, he said, stop sinning or life is going to get worse for you. We don't really know what sin he was doing there might be some reason to suspect this this isn't clear in scripture by any means but there might be some reason to suspect that he had been developing some kind of a scam playing upon people's mercies and that maybe that was the kind of sin that was going on whatever it is jesus was calling him to live a life that is pure, not dominated by sin. And so his uh, response is to go back to the Jews who were angry and say, Jesus was the one. He ratted on Jesus for having told him to carry his mat, get up and walk. The other set of characters is identified as the Jews. Not by any means all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. Uh, there were many Jews, but the Jews, this term when it's used like that is talking about a, a particular class of people who are the empowered 
Jews, the people who have gained a kind of religious political power where they have the right to tell everybody else what to do because, you see, they're the ones who are always right. When they say, here's what the law means, you're supposed to do it. When they say, this is what you have to do, you're supposed to submit. We know people like that. They're probably not Jews. They may be head of a party. They may be the ones who are trying to instruct us on exactly what social justice means. They're people who are always right and think that you're foolish for having the notion that you can think for yourself or that you have some kind of relationship with the Lord that would lead you to do something that is other than what they have decreed is the new norm. They were legalistic. They had decided they alone understood what God means, what he expects. And if you want to be right with God, you need to be right with us first. And they held their power very jealously. And when they saw Jesus coming along, having the audacity to reach out in love to a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years and to not follow a legalistic interpretation of the Sabbath, they were threatened. And so... Because they believe in everything being done right, they wanted to kill Jesus. Notice the absurdity of that mix. Let's be good. Let's kill him, okay? It just doesn't fit. Now, what you're seeing in this story is really different approaches to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for you to say, Jesus is my Lord. The approach that the lame man took was a pretty passive approach. Kind of wait and see. Lord, do whatever you need to do, but don't have a lot of expectation from me. If it's getting up and walk, okay, that's a good thing, but uh, Lord, You're the one who has to do it all. It's not a sense of submission and partnership with the Lord. It's rather, go ahead, Lord. You do your thing. I'll be here to enjoy it. Thanks a lot. You've known folks like that. The kind of approach to lordship that the uh, Jews held was also a pattern that is seen pretty frequently. It's really a lordship that says, Jesus is my Lord. I uh, allow him to do the things that I choose to allow him to do. I make the decisions about it. Are there really such people? Well, when when you see what the, the Jews were doing, there's actually no r- room for any kind of lordship. They not only weren't ready to recognize Jesus, they really were not recognizing God the Father as Lord because they were Lord over others. People who cry out loudly, telling everybody else what they should be doing while they themselves are inconsistent, behaving like hypocrites, 
they're taking that kind of approach to, to lordship, worshiping with their mouths, claiming that Jesus is Lord, but actually practicing, demonstrating by their lives that I am my own Lord. And I really would appreciate it if you would allow me to be lording it over you as well. Obviously, neither of these approaches to lordship is going to be in any way beneficial. But the third approach to lordship is somewhat more simple. Jesus really is Lord. You have chosen to place Jesus on the throne in your life. You're allowing him to reign over you. Can you do that? Have you really done that? Here are some ways in which you may be able to test the degree to which Jesus is your Lord. Look at your service, the service that you render. Do you do it begrudgingly? Yeah, I guess I have to. I have to do some of this service or the church isn't going to be able to do things. It's not going to be heard in the community. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. Okay, that's a start, but that's not really submission to lordship. Is your service one where you say, well, I'll do it, but I better be rewarded for it. You know, I don't want to be like that guy I heard about in uh, Merseyside, England, who got arrested because he found the cell phone. And I really don't want to be like Jesus, who did something really good for a, a person, and the person just snapped at him and wasn't willing to respond well like a person I heard about just this morning who was in a, a driver's license bureau and needed some help sorting through his things, and someone offered to help, and he said, I can do it myself. Don't want to risk that. You see, doing service is not for the sake of being rewarded. It's not for the sake of helping people to understand what a really wonderful person you are, even though you probably really are a really wonderful person. But it's for the sake of somehow showing what the love of Christ is all about. Your service is one way of seeing the Lordship of Christ. There's another way that gets somewhat painful for us. What do you do when you're at the time where people are hard to love? One of the characteristics of Jesus is his love for the people who were tough to love, really tough to love. And he continued to love those people. He not only loved this lame man who was rather passive and not very appreciative, he even loved these Jews who were persecuting him and who were wanting to kill him. And his love was like that. Who in your life do you find really difficult to love? Sometimes we've generalized and we have our people we don't love based on race or ethnicity or what state they live in, you know, those Iowans and things like that. Sometimes it has to do with their political affiliation. Sometimes it has to do with a history with that person where he did something wrong to me. 
are personally, he did something wrong to my daughter. And am I going to love that person? It takes a while. It takes a significant effort to implement love where it does not spring naturally because of the lack of loving behavior that person has shown. That's one of the marks of the Lordship of Christ where you allow the Lord to do some transformation of your uh, your attitudes. Showing the Lordship of Christ may come in some of your most difficult moments. It involves trust. Trust that may not be immediately affirmed. Do you continue to trust that God is indeed Lord over your life when you've just said goodbye to the person you love the most in life? When you're standing at a graveside of someone who's been a part of your life and you always want to be a part of your life and you have to yield up this person whom you've loved because life has gone. Do you have the trust that God is still at work when those relationships that you've treasured are being broken? Can you trust that God is still with you? You see, the Lordship of Christ demands that when life is at its most difficult point, you're still confident by a choice of confidence that God is at work in your life. Another way of assessing your Lordship is to check how you identify yourself. What is your first identity? Okay, does anybody ever hear watch a program on television called Wheel of Fortune? Uh, is there anybody who doesn't? Shame on you if you don't. I mean, that's how I learned to read. Uh, okay. Notice how people introduce themselves. Well, uh, I'm... I do this, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a technician, usually avoid naming a specific company, but I have this job, and I have a, it's usually a fantastic wife or some, something that's really a, quite a description. Um, some of the most wonderful spouses in the world are apparently related to the people on Wheel of Fortune. What if, well... Most important thing you need to know about me is I'm a Christian. Not that I'm a 75-year-old bald-headed former professor. That's irrelevant. I'm a Christian. That is my primary identity. I'm a Christian when I'm dealing with decisions that are to be made in the workplace. I'm a Christian when I'm dealing with driving down the road and deciding whether or not to pull out my gun to shoot the person who's just cut me off. I'm a Christian when I'm out to eat and the waitress has failed to bring me that little stick of celery that I hoped would be upon my plate. I'm a Christian. All of my behavioral choices are rooted in my being Christian. When that 
is the most important dynamic in my life, then, then the Lordship of Jesus Christ has been personally applied in my life. How about you? Is Jesus your Lord? How do you know? What do you do? How do you serve? How do you relate? How's your heart? How do you wrestle with the most painful times? How do you struggle with the most difficult to love people? How do you make your choice? If your first choice is, I'm a Christian, therefore, here is what I'll do, then you are exhibiting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're singing a hymn of of invitation. Um, What was that one? I saw it in the bulletin. Uh, Yes, I need thee every hour. It's, It's quite a statement. It's basically an acknowledgement that at every moment you need Jesus. He, you see, is your Lord. If you need to make some kind of decision to uh, affirm for this congregation of people that you want to join them in your pursuit of the Lord Jesus, Lordship of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to step forward and you're going to find a whole congregation of people who want to surround you and support you in hoisting up the Lordship of Christ in your life. Please respond.